Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hey, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And uh, with me this week, uh, a subject that needs to be discussed and a subject which is too infrequently discussed, a subject which... So some people mind it a little distressing. So a subject that's incredibly topical and a subject which I think all of us at some point in our lives are going to connect with. Uh, and the subject we're going to talk about is going to be um, discussed with Dr. Bob Uslander, who's joining me today, I think from the States. Is that right, Dr. Bob? Absolutely. From San Diego. San Diego. Sunny San Diego. It's, don't tell me it's sunny over there, is it? Uh, well, it's a little overcast today, but but uh, typically by mid-morning, the clouds will break and We'll have bright, sunny skies. And um, <clears throat> I tend not to talk about it too much to folks who aren't in, you know, aren't here because I don't want to make them if it's, envious. If it's, or, or, if it's any yeah. consolation, I was chatting to someone from Australia about uh, five hours ago and they had a, it was nine o'clock at night and it was, I think it was something like 85 degrees Fahrenheit. So they were, they, it was, I don't feel quite so bad now. So, um, <laughs> so Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Sounds good. So I'm a, I'm a physician here in San Diego, uh, and and I am Russell. I'm originally from Chicago, so I really appreciate uh, the the Southern California uh, warmth and and weather. Mm. Um, but I'm a physician. I've spent my first 25 years as an emergency physician. So I was trained in emergency medicine. I spent you know 25 years trying to help save people pretty much at, at all costs, and um, over time for a few different reasons, emergency medicine became uh, a pretty stressful type of career. It's a, it's a great career for younger doctors. I feel like as you get older, the, the, um, the stress and the, the, the schedules uh, and, and become, become more challenging. And for my, for me, I started to, to really crave a deeper connection with my patients than what could be you know, created in that brief ex- experience in the emergency department. And I transitioned, um, really felt a calling, a pull towards supporting people who were approaching the end of their life. Um, and I transitioned into doing palliative care and hospice care about 10 years ago. Right. And after a couple of years working in a traditional insurance-based model for a company in San Diego, um, I, I found out there was great value in being able to go into people's homes and, and identify what their challenges were, what their needs were, and help, you know, help find those resources and support them. 
Um, but I became very aware of some huge gaps in our healthcare system that were uh, universal and causing people to struggle and, and in a way that, that was really disturbing to me. Um, and the gaps that I discovered were gaps that I felt that I could fill for people um, who were open to engaging with me in a, in a team in a different way. And so I started my own practice uh, at about seven years ago. So my, my, my medical practice is, is a very holistic, uh, it's a team of people who show up to provide support, both medical care, emotional support, spiritual support, both for the patients and the families who are going through these challenging circumstances. Um, and, and we basically create a village of support around people um, through their final chapter of life. And the name of my practice is called It's Empowered Endings. And our goal was to empower people to have the kind of end of life experience that we all wanted to serve. Yeah. So you've given us a lot to go on there. So let's start from the big beginnings that were. So a couple of basic questions, if I may. Um, I mean, I know what goes on in the UK, but is, are the arrangements for end of life care different, different states in the US? Are the what? Are the I'm arrangements sure. for palliative care, oh, end of well, life care, different in different states? Yeah, I, I, I don't know how things go in the UK. I'm assuming that that there's that similar to here. There's hospice care, yeah, which is available for people who have a, a terminal illness. Our insurance, you know, our our insurance um, structure is such that if if somebody is is approaching their final, you know, the final chapter and let's say that they have cancer and they've been undergoing treatment for the cancer and they're at a point where the treatment's no longer helping or they're no longer able to tolerate the treatment. And, you know, they're, 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 they're looking to have more of a, of a gentle comfort focused approach. They're referred to hospice care. Hospice is cut care is covered by, by Medicare insurance. Um, and what you get when you go on hospice care is a nurse who will come to your home and uh, do an assessment and, and help to navigate medications and other types of treatments. They will typically communicate with a doctor who never sees the patient. Once people go on hospice in this country, the vast majority of them will never see a doctor again, which to me is ludicrous. The idea that at this, at this time of life, when everything becomes extremely you know, challenging and scary and, and, you know, the, you, the, so much is happening. It's very dynamic. The idea that doctors are no longer actively engaged in taking care of patients or communicating with families is, it, it doesn't make sense. Yes. Um, and I think it causes a lot of frustration and a, and a lot of unnecessary um, struggle. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of confusion about end of life care generally, isn't there? You, even in the medical profession, you'll see older people who have, end of life situations going on where they'll suddenly have a doctor arriving who will start to treat them um, as if they as if they're going to and it's almost like um, certainly for our, our, in our world care isn't linked up and I think and I wonder if you what, what you think about this is maybe it's we don't think enough about the subject early enough so we don't maybe write a pathway have a plan have our exactly. wishes explicit such like I think we have a general reluctance not to talk about the end of our own life what what would you say about that? Well, I think that, that it, I think that's true. I think that people are, are often reluctant to talk about it. I also know that doctors and people in healthcare are uncomfortable talking about it. Mm -hmm. They don't receive any training, very little training, if at all, 
in in how to approach the end of life and how to help navigate people through it. So there's a lot of discomfort in having those conversations. So they often don't happen. And so planning, it doesn't happen. Some people create an advanced healthcare directive, which is a document that identifies who they would want to you know, provide care for them and speak for them if they can't. And it also indicates what they would want if they were um, imminently dying, if they had a if they had a condition that was irreversible, and you know, and they were uh, they, they were on the brink of death, that they wouldn't they would or wouldn't want aggressive treatment, CPR, things yeah. like that. There isn't a lot of discussion about about the actual uh, the, the true path that most people take, which is not I'm okay now. And I'm on the brink of death, you know, the next, the next day, most of the time it's, it's, it's a series of events. It's a series of hospitalizations, treatments, things where, where um, the quality of life starts to erode, the, the, the become, people become more limited, more restricted. And they, and they start to think about like how much more of this am I willing to, to endure and, what, what are the options if I decide that I no longer want to undergo this kind of treatment or this yeah. this type of, of life? And there is, so there isn't a lot of discussion about how people can choose to allow their life to come to an end. Most people, when they get to a point where they feel like the quality of life is gone, just have to struggle along yeah. until something happens. And I, you know, we have patients on a regular basis, you reach out to us to have conversations because we will have those conversations. We will engage in, in them at any stage uh, along the way. And and they often tell us, I, I every night I go to sleep and I pray that I don't wake up. Yeah. And then when I wake up, I'm, I'm just really disappointed and frustrated that I have to keep doing this over and over again. Yeah. And nobody gives, there's nobody gives them an option. So one of the things that, that we've started, uh, that, that we've been doing for some some years now is assisting people through the legal end of life options for people who are ready to die for various reasons. They're terminally ill. They've been living with, with a severe life limiting illness and they're in pain or they're uh, paralyzed and life has very little quality for them after careful assessments, psychological assessments, engaging to try to do everything we can to improve their quality of life. Sometimes people just really, truly are ready to die. Yeah. And if you think about it, with with we when our pets get to that point, we yeah. do the compassionate thing and we take them and and let them gently and peacefully go mm. with dignity. Mm. People are asking for that kind of care for themselves and their family members as well at times. So we support people through medical aid in dying, which is the death with dignity. It's been legal in certain states in this country for a number of years, and it's been legal in California since 2016 that a, quali- a person who qualifies, meaning that they can make their own decisions and that they have a terminal condition with a life expectancy of less than six months, can go through a process with, you know, with a physician and a team guiding them to get medication that if they choose to take it, they can go to sleep within minutes and die within minutes or hours. Very peaceful, very gentle, very dignified, very empowering. Um, similarly, people who don't necessarily qualify or don't live in states that do allow this in our country can go through a process called voluntarily stopping eating and drinking, yeah. which it will become more and more sort of accepted and discussed over time because as as the baby boomers age and get ill and you know, are approaching death, 
I think the baby boomers are going to choose differently than, than their parents and the generations before them. And so we've been able to support people who have made the choice with appropriate counsel and, and buy-in from their families and their loved ones um, to stop eating and drinking. And with the right support and the team that we can help put in place, they can have a gentle um, end-of-life experience that, that that unfolds over seven to ten days in most cases. Yeah. So, so. I mean, it's often said that um, the fiercest critics of the process have never actually experienced anything themselves. And certainly in this country, in Parliament, we had uh, quite a well-known case where one MP who'd been a famous um, adversary of assisted dying or assisted suicide, whatever you want to call it, as we call it in this country, or... Um, your more elegant term over there, became a, a real adv- advocate for it when he had to watch his own mother with a terminal disease go through this process and and literally lose their dignity, lose their independence. My own mother went through a similar sort of situation. I had MSA, which I think you call ALS over there. And, mm-hmm. um, and no one who's experienced a parent go through that would want that not to happen. But there are many, many people, and it's often religious or spiritual grounds or ethical grounds which are used, or the fear of the power being abused, which is the reason used to stop it. Um, and I know you talk about spiritual aspects to this and psychological aspects of this. I wonder if you can just give us a view on on the spiritual side of how this might work, especially with people with maybe with religious beliefs or families with a different sort of religious belief, because I'm guessing you're trying to mediate a path there between various different factional interests. How does that work? Yeah, so often often we are trying to help navigate that with families. So, you know, the way that I approach that is that we have a very spiritual approach to life. Um, we're not not a specific religion, not not um, a way. It's a very inclusive uh, belief system and and it infuses everything that we do in our practice. My wife is my partner in the practice. She's a social worker and a spiritual counselor. And we have doulas who are working closely with us and nurses. And everybody has this, tries to, to create a spiritual connection with the mm-hmm. patients and families that we, that we care for. If somebody has a religious, uh, is strongly religious and their religion does not allow them to make decisions that would that would hasten their end of life, then they they probably won't go down this path. Mm. And I would never try to convince them that they should. I don't try to convince anybody that they should do anything. Yeah. I try to help allow people to know what's possible and understand all of the different options and um, you know parameters and and then help them make the decisions that are most aligned for them. Yeah. So if a patient has a religious opposition or any other opposition to a certain course or a certain path, then then we honor that. And we try to find ways to keep them as comfortable and feeling as dignified as possible, having the most agency. When we have patients who want to utilize medical aid in dying um, and they have family members who oppose it mm-hmm. for whatever reason, it's our, our job is to try to help find alignment there, to, ha- to help the family member understand how they can be most supportive given their different views. Sometimes they come around, sometimes they speak to their to their pastor or their rabbi or you know people in their in their community and find a way to be um, comfortable. Sometimes they're not and they and they take a bit and they're and they're less engaged. Mm. Um, it, the goal was to try to support the, the patient in, ex, 
in experiencing the most peace and comfort and dignity. And, and so we advocate for the patients, but recognize that sometimes their loved ones will not find a way to be supportive. And, and those are challenging cases because you certainly want everybody to be aligned and, and moving in the same direction on the same page. But, you know, we, we, we do the best that we can in, in those challenging circumstances to make sure that the patient's needs are met. One of the one of the big focuses for our practice is helping the families navigate whatever challenges they're they're facing. We realize that in our healthcare system, and I would imagine in most healthcare systems, the patients are the primary focus and the families are often left out. They have high huge needs, mm. huge stress, they're overwhelmed, and the system doesn't really have a mechanism to take care of them. We do. We focus on taking care of them where we have direct contact. They have our cell phone numbers. We're texting and emailing and meeting with and helping family members find a way to 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 be uh, at peace as much as possible. And we, you know, we provide therapy and counseling and bereavement support because they're the ones who are going to be sticking around yeah. after their loved one dies. The experience is going to have an impact on the loved ones for years or decades. Yeah. And and we we believe that we can make a huge impact on on the the quality of life that those people will experience because of the care that they were able to bring to their loved one in those final days. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because we often have um, funeral planning, so after death planning. Um, so I'm thinking about myself. I have after death planning, but very few of us have pre death planning. And actually, yeah. how you ease your family through the grieving process, uh, which is complex in itself, especially if you've engaged in a long, if you had a long illness, it's one of the challenges, isn't it? You know, some people who are grieving have this massive sense of relief when that loved one dies, because actually, it's the end of the pain and suffering. And then there's a, a degree of guilt and such like in the grieving having already taken place. And and it's that classic thing, isn't it? The more the more the subject becomes part, part of you know, um, I was going to say common pollens. I don't mean that, but it, it becomes a more uh, an acceptable conversation because it's it's almost like hiding it away. It's not the issue. It's not the way to deal with this, is it? We should be having yeah. frank conversations with family. I do. I have a living well, and it's something I would recommend. And um, and I have you know what happens to me after I die, and but my care has worked out, and that's the way I maintain my dignity, and my independence because I've made the decisions at the point where I can. Now, something might happen, uh, and who who knows. Oh. But, but the, the point is about not being frightened of the process, is it? Right. Well, so I have a couple couple comments on, on that. And, I think, and I'm, I'm uh, impressed that you've had all this, all this laid out and this, you know, these plans made that everyone does. I think that um, so you, you can make the best, the best plans and, and try to anticipate as much as, as you can. Um, but things often happen in a way that that yeah. challenges that. And so the, I think the most important thing that you can do to preserve your dignity and your agency and, and have the, the best chance of having what we refer to as a soft landing is to make sure that the people who are going to make decisions for you, who are going to speak for you when you can't speak for yourself, clearly understand what you would want given any of the different circumstances that could, that could occur. Um, and, and that's why we, we do some pretty extensive planning with people. We have conversations and we go through as a, 
as a longtime emergency physician and palliative care and hospice doctor, I, can, I have such a, 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 a range of experiences that help inform me about the things that could happen to people and that, that could put them in really challenging situations. And so we're able to discuss those and, and identify what they would want given certain scenarios unfolding and then document it or, or even have those conversations with their loved ones so that they really are clear about what they would or wouldn't want. Um, and then they need to have advocates. They need people who will advocate for them yeah. at the time things are happening because otherwise, you know, the medical system will do what the medical system does, which is typically treat, treat, admit, diagnose. And then, and then if someone, you know, says, no, we're, we're, we're done with that. No more hospitalizations, no more testing. Then they basically say, okay, well, there's nothing else to do. And they kind of push them off onto hospice care where they lose a lot of the things that, that they had access to. And, and there's this huge sort of gap. And that's the gap that we're, that we're focused on filling. The other thing I wanted to point out is that we always say that we're a death phobic society and no one wants to talk about death. And, and it's, it's such a taboo topic. In my experience, people really want to talk about it. They just don't have, a, a, they just don't have a mech, a comfortable way to do it. But I, I find, you know, when I'm, when I'm out at parties or I'm out and I meet people and they find out what I do, everybody wants to talk about it. They want to talk about the experience they had when their mom died, whether it was because it was either really, you know, traumatic and challenging or it was really beautiful and transformational. But, you know, people, in my experience, people are, are dying to talk about this because, because it's, it's freeing in some ways. There's, there's something that's kind of, it's kept in and it, and it's, it's protected. And then when you can release it and, express these things in a way that that feels safe um i think it's really it's really comforting and and um satisfying for a lot of people in my experience yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's, that's a very good thought actually um i'm just making note of that um one of the things um one of the things you've said which has really struck made me think about this about the psychology of uh, uh grieving and people building resilience to be good carers, be good voices, be good advocates. And um, I like the fact that you're supporting those people because often when you're having to make a decision or carry out the wishes of another person, but actually you're sitting there and, and you're, you are psychologically affected by that decision you're making. I know when I had to have the conversation about stopping my mother's drugs, which meant that she would, would she would die. Um, the, the conversation I had with myself was, do I do what's right for me, which is not do that, or do you do what's right for your parent, which is what they want? And and I think you find a lot of people torn between that. And actually have, and I like the idea of this, having a village around the, around the family, because sometimes it's about reminding people and helping people through that process. Because again, there's quite a lot of guilt attached to it if not if you're not careful. But I love that phrase, people are dying to talk about it. That's my new, I'm going to steal <laughs> that. <laughs> you're welcome to. Look, how do people find out more, find out more about what you do, um, maybe connect with you if they're interested to talk more about the situation or even if they want to access your services? How, how do yeah. they do that? Well, we have a, a website. It's empoweredendings.com, empoweredendings.com. There's a lot of information about myself, my wife, the team that we put together, the, the work that we do. Um, there's an update to the website coming up in a, in a 
a month or two. Um, we're, so we have um, the medical practice here in San Diego. We care for people throughout Southern California. And we're also looking to help other doctors and doulas, end of life doulas, okay. create practices in their communities. So one of the things that we're, that we've built as a, a, a medical services organization that, that will support practices in, uh, in being established using our kind of our, uh, our, our methods. Yeah. Um, we have an educational institute that is going to start training, um, doing programs and trainings for people in healthcare. We find a lot of people like nurses and social workers and chaplains who are working within the system would actually like to start working outside the system because they yeah. could do it in a way that's more aligned for them and rewarding. So we're helping to guide people towards towards finding alternative careers outside of the traditional system. Um, so, the, And we also have a foundation that is providing financial support and bereavement support for people who have gone through certain end-of-life um, uh, circumstances. So there's a lot of information on the websites, uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to really create a, um, a, a tribe, a, a, a national or even international tribe of people yeah. who want to see end-of-life care improve and you know, shift the paradigm so that we don't feel like we're taking better care of our pets than we are of our people. I'm into that. Well, look, thank you so much for spending time today. That's absolutely fascinating. It's a subject that's close to my heart. And I, I remember when uh, your details popped up on our uh, our feed that I was very interested to talk to you. And it's been absolutely fascinating getting a, an overall picture of what's going on and also how people can get hold of you. It's very topical in this country every now and then when a celebrity yeah. has a has a, a life of threatening condition. We've got someone called Esther Ranson at the moment, who's very well known in our country. And again, wanting to have assisted dying and not being allowed to have it. And uh, we're, we, a lot of us have to travel to Switzerland to get that sort of uh, dignity from a company called Dignitas. Right, Dignitas. right. Yeah. Which, is, oh. which is truly unfortunate to have to leave your home and your and your people and yeah. your comfort. So hopefully things will uh, improve there and, and, and you'll have those options. And, Let's um, hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, thank you very much. It was, uh, it was it's great been a, It's been a joy. So it's Dr. Bob Uslander, Empowered Endings, and uh, find the information in the show notes. And um, thank you, Bob. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. Take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed. And if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.